Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Back before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I embarked on a series of podcasts that I was calling Thinking About Thinking About China. I wanted to do some shows that explored some of the deeper issues on how we look at China and bring in issues of moral philosophy, epistemology, historiography, uh, psychology, and much else. My feeling has long been that we don't think deeply enough about how we approach China, how we think we know what we think we know about the, uh, the very questions that we ask about our priors, our blind spots, our sources of cognitive bias. After February 24th, uh, that got derailed a bit. I've always meant to get back to it and do some more shows that go beneath the surface, not just dealing superficially with the latest twists in the U.S.-China relationship or, or the breaking news. So when I cracked open Yasheng Huang's new book, The Rise and Fall of the East, I immediately realized that having him on the show to talk about that book would scratch this itch of mine that I have long had and allow me to get back into some of these deeper topics that I have set aside for too long. The Rise and Fall of the East, and you should know that EAST here is an acronym that stands for Exams, Autocracy, Stability, and Technology. It's one of those lamentably rare books that ask the really big questions and that offers pretty bold original ideas about how and why China is the way that it is. I, I have no doubt that it's going to engender quite a bit of controversy, that there are going to be a lot of historians who are, are going to question some of the methods. Uh, but I'm also confident that it's going to be talked about and cited for many years to come. After all, it sets out, among many things, to identify the forces that formed the mind of contemporary China, the, the political culture, if you like, and the many features of Chinese politics that defy easy explanation. It also takes things all the way up to the present and offers its own prognosis for China under Xi Jinping 
In some ways, it takes its place in the growing literature on authoritarian resilience. But to my mind, it does actually a lot more than just that. It, it also reaches quite far back into history. It tries to draw actual data from history to support its conclusions. I haven't come across a book with this level of ambition in, in quite some time. It's out on August 29th, so make sure to pick up a copy. Yasheng Huang is International Program Professor in Chinese Economy and Business and Professor of Global Economics and Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And he's just moved to D.C. to take up a fellowship at the Woodrow Wilson Center. I am uh, not only excited to have him on the show to talk about this you know, incredibly thought-provoking book, but I am just as excited that he's going to be our keynote speaker at the upcoming Next China Conference on November 2nd in New York City. Yasheng, welcome back to Seneca. It has been a long time. Yeah, thank you, Kaiser. I think last time we talked, the world was almost totally different from the world today. <laughs> it sure was. <laughs> and uh, not, not, not for the worse, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So in my introduction to you just now, I talked about some of the things that your book tries to do, but I think it would be better if people hear it directly from you. What would you say are the really big questions that your book sets out to answer? Yeah, thank you so much, Kaiser, for hosting me on your podcast. I also very much agree with you that the writings and musings about China often are driven by current events, right? And they don't go deep enough. They are really good books and articles that go deep, but those are rare and far in between. So at least in my book, I try to go beyond current events, but I don't leave current events. As you pointed out, I go all the way to the Xi Jinping era. In terms of the claims that I made in my book, so East, uh, the the first letter uh, is uh, exam. Uh, Specifically, I refer to the civil service exam system that was established in the 6th century. The basic point of my book is that if you sort of look at the three other components of the East, autocracy, stability, and technology, and technology here is about technology, but also you know economic growth and things like that, you can kind of trace these three dynamics to the exam system. Right, hmm. and and so so that that's the kind of causal framework that I proposed in my book, and there, you know, I agree with many social scientists and historians. Today's China is shaped by its past. What I don't do is defining the past as Confucianism, you know, values and, and in those terms. I define the past in terms of mechanism, this kind of specific practice of cultivating human capital, of shaping the minds of the Chinese people. You just talked about uh, espionology, right? So there's kind of a particular way that we approach the world without questioning that methodology, right? And I trace that to the civil service exam system known in Chinese as a Kirchhi system, right? Mm-hmm. So it is going beyond the people who do work on Kirchhi system. They tend to look at the Gaokao system today, the higher education exam today, 
and the civil service exam system in the Chinese system today. Definitely those are the contemporary versions of the Kuju. But I go a little bit, well, quite a bit beyond that. Uh, so I talk about the norms and I talk about the way that people approach the world around us, the way that people approach the political system as a product of the Kuju system in addition to these specific institutional and practice manifestations. That's a fantastic overview. And we will get into each of these four you know, elements of this acronym EAST, you know, of course, beginning and focusing on the Kuju system in just a bit. But before we do that, you have a really great framing device that you use that, that it spans the whole book. These ideas of scale and scope, these are really the anchoring ideas. It makes sense for us to talk, I think, a bit about what these are to make sure that our listeners really grasp what you mean when you talk about scale versus scope, because I'll be using these in, in, in the conversation, uh, and I'm sure you will be too. So let's, let's make sure that everyone understands what you mean by scale and scope and how these relate to homogeneity and heterogeneity, how they relate to you know, uh, authoritarianism and pluralism. Yeah, thank you, Kaiser, uh, so much for bringing up this uh, topic. And by the way, I'm now, we'll come back to this, but my current book is about the scale and scope and apply that framework to democracies and autocracies. So that's my current book. Uh, let, let's go back to this uh, framework. So the one potential criticism is that, oh, I tackle four big topics, exam, autocracy, stability, and technology. That's true. But I don't tackle these things randomly, right? I tie them up with a pretty tight framework, which is what I call scale and scope. You know, that may not be the most <laughs> catchy name that we can come up with, but, but that's the one that I use in my, in my book. Basically, scale means homogeneity, right? Think about factories, right? You produce widgets, mm -hmm. you produce nails, you produce uh, automobile engines, you produce 1 million units of those, 100 millions of those, uh, 1 billion units of those, exactly the same thing. You can scale that, right? And we can also use that to refer to government policy, right? Industrial policy, the organizational apparatus that the government has to organize economy, organize science, uh, organize technology. The financial commitment the government provides to the economy, to technology, right? $2 billion, $100 billion, right? China now spends somewhere, I, I may not get it exactly right, uh, but in terms of the R&D expenditure, second only to the United States. So China had, relative to its GDP, is very high, so, so, so the scale is, is, is very big. Scope right. basically means differences, right? And differences in opinions, differences in ethnicities, differences in ideologies, and differences in values. My overall claim is that for a country to succeed, you define success in political terms, economic terms, to succeed, you need both. And you need right. kind of the right balance between the two. If you are too much on the scale side, you succeed in some ways, but you fail in, in others, right? And 
I would argue the imperial China scaled, but then at the expense of scope, and therefore they couldn't develop the economy. And then if you are excessive on the scope side, you also have problems, right? So now we're right. witnessing this in the United States. You know, people can't agree on climate change. People cannot agree on gun control, right? People cannot agree on the imperative to wear masks during the pandemic. And that's extremely damaging and detrimental to a society's uh, development, right? So the failure of the United States to provide basic health and to strengthen its basic education. And, and that's because of lack of scale, right? And, and that's not good either. Right? We, we have plenty of scope, but if we don't have the necessary scale, a society can also have problems, right? So, so that's kind of the idea uh, behind these two concepts. You know, exactly where you end up is a bit of a guesswork, right? Right. But conceptually, I think it's straightforward. You need you need both, and 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 the tension is that often they are in contradiction with each other. So some societies right. overachieve on scope. I will put India there. Some societies overachieve on scale, and I will put China today in that category. Very much so. Very much so. Just now, in in talking about scale, you use the example of a factory that enjoys economies of scale, its ability to produce you know, a lot of the same product, the widget or the, the car engine or what have you. You could, you know, I guess, suppose, extend that analogy and talk about scope in terms of different product lines, yeah. you know, entirely different business areas, different business models, right? Uh, and yeah, I mean, there, again, the, the, one has to find the balance. There's another sort of an analogy, perhaps not surprising you are, after all, a, a professor at Sloan, it comes from the business world, um, from organizational economics yeah. to be specific. You talk about M-form and U-form economies. Uh, this, again, comes up a, a bit in your book, and, and maybe it'd be a good idea for us to just sort of unpack that a little bit now. Yeah. What is an M-form economy? Why is actually China an M-form rather than a U-form economy as so many people imagine it to be? Yeah, thank you, Kaiser. The idea originated from two China economists, uh, Ying Yiqian and Cheng Gang Xu. They based their analysis on Williamson's uh, great book on, on this topic, on the M-form economy and organization. And so to some extent, the U-form is about scale, right? Soviet Union had a U-form economy, very detailed division of labor, you know, while Republic produced zillion units of uh, widgets, and then other Republics don't produce any, right? So it is a classic example of very detailed division of labor. So Soviet Union excelled in scale, and that's called U-form uh, economy. And the term comes from business historians, and uh, Alfred Chandler is the other uh, a scholar who came up with this idea is that historically speaking, corporations uh, evolve from U form to M form. So, U form uh, corporation has very, very specialized divisions finance department, marketing department, product development, RD department, right? 
And then they have these very detailed divisions all the way in their organization. So there's one R&D department, there's one finance department. What the business historians and Oliver Williamson observe is that in the early part of the 20th century, American corporations moved away from U-form type to M-form type. M-form, one way to think about it is duplication. Uh, so you have uh, group one, group two, and group one has finance department and product development uh, department. Group two also has a similar division, right? So they're, sometimes they're competing with each other very often, right? And the headquarters don't really get themselves involved in the detailed decision-making. They kind of look out for strategies and overall development. And Chinese economy during the better heart of the reform era, which I define in my book as 78 to 2018. We can come back to that later. Right. Basically, it operated under this unform economy. So it moved from a kind of a central planning, the U-form, to a unform economy, right? And reaping the benefits of competition, entrepreneurship, because U-form economy was not very good at encouraging competition. M-form economy is very good at encouraging competition. To me, this is a very convincing explanation why China outperformed Soviet Union and Russia by a long shot, right? Even though China right. operated under autocracy. So that's another element of my book, which is that Cheng Gang and Ying Yi, as good as they were when they wrote about the M form economy, they didn't really touch on the political aspect, right? So, so, right. so you right. had a scope, the economic scope, but that economic scope operated under the political scale. Right? So, in my book, I uh, provided uh, narrations and explanations to argue that the M-form economy succeeded not just because of itself, but also because they operated under appropriate political control by the center, right? Right. So that despite China's overbalancing in favor of scale over scope, it still had sufficient scope conditions to be able to be relatively successful right. through the end of the reform yeah. period. yeah. So, but, yeah, so, and that's that's really you know yeah. what what you you argued. So the central argument of the the first four sections of your book are really about you know again how despite this absence of so many of the scope conditions that prevailed in Europe and it's in its you know colonial offshoots, despite or maybe actually to extent because of the autocratic politics of both Imperial China and and the PRC, it's been able to endure and even thrive. So no, so it strikes me that reading this. You are tackling a lot of the same fundamental questions that Francis Fukuyama yeah. set out to to answer in the origins of political order, and and maybe less so in the yeah. second volume of that of that two volume series, political order and political decay. Um, there are definitely some areas of congruence between uh, what you argue and what he did. Although you know it's it's been some years, I have to say, yeah. since I read his book. But you know what I I remember, you know, is that he's really talking about. These institutions of political constraint, right? Like the rule of law, checks and balances, strong parliaments, uh, a peerage, 
and probably most importantly, just like a, a separate universal church, a, a, a sort of source of natural law or whatever that, that's existed yeah. outside of secular authority. Um, so when, when I was reading Fukuyama's book, the whole time I was, I, I believe that what he was really trying to get at was explaining China, right? Uh, that it felt like the whole book was really aimed wow. at exp- maybe it's my bias, but um, so I, I I saw definitely ideas of of scope conditions that he talked about. He didn't call them that. Yeah. This you know pluralistic habit of the Western mind and how this developed and how it never never took hold in China because China developed you know such efficient bureaucracy so early yeah. on. Yeah. Um, so do you see your ideas as broadly compatible with his, or do you think he diverge in really important ways? Yeah, so I, I think they are, as you pointed out, they are areas uh, of concurrence between my book and his, his work. Uh, recognizing the really remarkable institution that China, Imperial China created, right? And I believe Fukuyama right. is among the first, I mean, maybe not the first, scholars in the West that really credit China with political modernization, right? I mean, the traditional prejudice is, oh, Chinese system was backward and, and primitive. Uh, Fukuyama really argued that China invented bureaucracy Invented right. impersonalization, in, invented bureaucratic routine. You know, basically, China. In my book, I, I, I said China invented Weberian system before Max Weber. Right. So, <laughs> so I uh, on that I totally agree with Francis uh, Fukuyama. I think the one area I probably disagree with him is that, but maybe to be fair to him, uh, he doesn't say that, but he sort of hinted that. The political path China undertook and the political path the West undertook are in some ways equivalent with each other, right? And as you pointed out, he didn't use the scale and scope framework. Uh, one way to put it is that China, Imperial China excelled in scale, the West excelled in scope. I think there I disagree in terms, not, not in terms of the observation, but in terms of the implications. I, I think China excelled in a scale and it paid a price. And sure. so historically speaking, so anybody who read the book would also remember that China used to have plenty of scope, right? You know, the, the Warring States period and this period, which I call Han Sui Interregnum, sort of uh, between 220 and uh, 580, you know, for 360 years, China basically had a European kind of a system, uh, a, a situation, I shouldn't say system, a European uh, situation in which different kingdoms competed with each other and different ideas uh, thrived, right? So, so the issue is, I think the issue is twofold. One is how come China evolved toward a different system after the Sui dynasty, after the 6th century, after the 7th century. And the other is, what are the implications? The implication is that China paid a dear price. And this is the key component of my framework. I was able to show that before Sui dynasty, China was actually quite inventive 
And then after that, not overnight, but gradually over a period of uh, a few hundred years, it began to stagnate and deteriorate in terms of technological innovations. So, uh, so I would argue that China didn't balance the scale and scope right after the sixth century, and it's not equivalent with the West. It was Europe. It was England specifically that came up with the industrial revolution and came up with GDP growth and wonderful medicines that we have benefited. Not China, right? So it's hard to argue that those two situations are equivalent in terms of their uh, economic implications, scientific implications. You know, it's interesting. You, you It's almost a sort of throwaway paragraph that uh, probably anticipates this next book that you're writing. But you talk about how democracy sort of dialed in this this good balance in that it, there are scale elements. That is, there are, are things that, that insists are uniform. To be in a democratic society, you have to believe in elections, in rule of law, in a separation of powers. So, you know, there are only a few things, but everything else, it's just whatever you want. I mean, it, whether it's it's gender or religion or... or uh, I thought that was that was a, a, a fantastically interesting observation, and I, I hope that you you expand on that in your your next book. But let, let's let's go back into the you know the E exams and the Kuju system, the the civil service examination uh, system. You deal quite a bit with Imperial China from 221 BC, really through the end of the the Qing in in 1912, and in particular, you single out three rulers, three emperors. Uh, Sui Wendi, who unified China in the 6th century, as you said, you know, Sui is very, very important. I, I was joking with somebody who said, your book is very Sui generous. <laughs> um, that was excellent, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, Zhu Yanzhang, of course, who's yeah. the founder of the Ming. Uh, well, well, first, Wu Zetian, uh, who reigned just a century after, you know, uh, Sui yeah. Wendi. Yeah. Uh, Wu Zetian, who's, of course, the first and only female emperor of, of China. Uh, they, these three are all bound together, though, because of you know this amazing scaling tool, right? Yeah. Uh, this is what you call it, and I thought that that was another thing that really stuck with me is the Kuju system as scaling tool. Yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, I doubt that anyone listening is completely unfamiliar with the Kuju system, but your book goes into wonderful detail. What made it such a powerful scaling tool, and how did it develop into such a tool? How was Sui Wen Di's innovation so different from because you know the civil service examination system in some form existed during the Han you know the, during Han Wu Di's time yeah. they they implemented something like that yeah so so what was so different yeah Sui Wen Di and Sui Dynasty as a whole made it I, I would say that dramatically innovated on the prior practices. Exam as a system, as a practice. Let me let me say actually dif- distinguish between practice and system. Uh, exam uh, as a practice was there, but a lot of it was ad hoc. Uh, during the Han Dynasty, it was ad hoc, oral exam. And it was not implemented on a, on a large scale, right? So it was it was kind of um, not regularly held, and a lot of it was like an interview, oral interview. And the curriculum mm. was not terribly developed, pretty haphazard. So you can just imagine that when you have an exam system that didn't have a consistent set of questions and answers, that 
that's not the kind of exam system that that we usually associate with an exam system. Right? A math test right. is consistent in terms of its uh, questions and answers. Seventy really made a difference, and what he did. So, so I in my book I said he invented the Kudzu system rather than crediting it to the previous attendance days. Um, mm-hmm. So he made it systematic, and he made it open to many, many people, right? But by the way, let me, let me just say that throughout the life of the Kudzu system, it was only open to the male population, to the male gender. Right. Uh, it was never open uh, to the female uh, gender. But Sui made it more open, and also one thing that he changed was previously you take an exam, oral exam, after the recommendation. Right. He kind of got rid of that, right? So just imagine that, you know, we as professors write recommendation letters, but only for the people we know, right? So, so that's going to be limiting to the people that you know if the system starts with a recommendation rather than an open-ended exam system. He made it open-ended. Right. You, know, uh, you know, again, so when I talked about these things, uh, some historians may say, oh, no, 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 it was not completely open-ended. They were still recommended. That's all true. But, but the issue is really the balance, right? So the, the portion that is open-ended relative to the portion that is based on recommendation increased dramatically during the Sui dynasty. And even more so during the, the, the rule of Wu Zetian. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so the three emperors that I profiled are really fascinating. To some extent, they're misfits uh, in, in one way or the other. One, one, one was a woman, so the, the only female emperor in the history of China. Wu Zetian... Uh, by the way, some historians have argued that Wu Zetian was a proto-feminist, a Buddhist by religion, very, very strong-willed woman, very brutal as well. <laughs> she killed the daughter of uh, the empress on, on her way to climb up the system. What she did was she opened up the exam system even more, right? So... And she began to systematically cultivate the pipeline from lower socioeconomic groups, right? Moved away from the nobility. And she also created, or at least systematized, the practice of being examiner herself, right? She would interview the examinees, and that's, later on evolved to be the palace exam, right? So Kudzu system had three tiers, the provincial, the metropolitan, and the palace. And Wu Zetian might not have invented the palace exam. She systematized the palace exam. So raising the profile of the Kudzu, right? So now the ordinary people can know, okay, even the emperor would give the exam. So it, it must be something very good. Right. What Zhu Yuanzhang did was so in in the in the modern language, he provided the basic education. He funded the basic education. 
he created a preparatory system, nationwide preparatory system that young boys participated in and prepared for the exam. That was incredible, right? So equivalent to a modern version of basic education and all paid for by the imperial government. They didn't charge tuition and the demand for these preparatory schools were, was very, very high. It was a very, very extensive system, right? Because when you take the exam, you need to prepare. If you don't have that, then even if nominally exam is open to everybody, it was not really open to the people from poor families, right? Song Dynasty also began to do some of that, but Zhu Yanjiang really increased the provision of the preparation. So that was really remarkable. I, I just, we talk about Fukuyama. I came away even more impressed with China, Imperial China, in terms of how systematic the system was. We can talk about implications in fact. Uh, that even Francis Fukuyama, and it was not just kind of a general bureaucracy. It was very well designed, very systematic, penetrating very deeply into the society. There were something like um, 2,300 preparatory schools scattered in the country. Uh, China then had about 2,400 administrative units, Units, right? So it's, it's you know... It's, it's That's a, pretty good coverage. It's, it's <laughs> a pretty good coverage, right? So... I think China deserves a lot of credit for coming up with the universal education. You know, we can criticize it on other grounds, but let's acknowledge how substantial that achievement was. Yeah, and I mean, it was universal in another sense, too, is that it had, I mean, by the time of Zhu Yanzhang, they fixed this Song Dynasty-style Neo-Confucianism, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the Confucianism of, of the Cheng brothers and, and Zhu Xi. Yeah. Um, as as the standard. So it was, you know, the four books and the five classics. And that, again, you know, to your point about it being scaling tool, that, that imposed this orthodoxy. It's funny, you, you kind of toss out this idea that Confucianism was a good basis for the examination system precisely because it was so ridiculously wordy and difficult to master. I, I actually, it made me think of this principle from biology where there are certain displays for mating uh, are, are they're so ridiculously biologically costly? They're so elaborate, and and so you know they serve so little function outside of that uh, that it's just the sheer difficulty of them, the sheer expense of them themselves that that sort of signals fitness as a yeah. mate. Because um, this, yeah, it, it's it's kind of funny. Um, so the idea was that it, it sort of drained off any excess energy that or time that might have been put into, you know, dissident activities, destabilizing purposes. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, Kaiser, uh, ridiculous is your term. <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, it's a hypothesis, it's a conjecture, right? So essentially, uh, I, I kind of model the Confucianism as a selection mechanism for human capital. And you need to come up with a stringent threshold, high threshold for human capital if you want to scale the system, right? So think about Christianity, right? right? So the, 
you know, that, that's just not terribly, you know, I, I don't really know as much about Christianity, but the Ten Commandments, and so if you kind of memorize those, that's a pretty low threshold. Nobody uh, does. Yeah, so, uh, okay, nobody does, but that's a pretty low threshold, right? So you can't really use that to select human capital, whereas Confucianism is such a wordy ideology, right? 300,000 characters, 400,000 characters. And you, you essentially, if you want the people in the pipeline, in the bureaucracy, who can memorize and who can commit to one idea only, right? You want that ideology to be the curriculum, right? Rather than legalism and Taoism and Buddhism. Those other ideologies, especially Taoism and Buddhism, are kind of ambiguous and they are they're mm-hmm. kind of this and that uh, on one hand on the other hand when you do the standardized test you don't want that <laughs> you you want straightforward right. answers right uh, so this is where the neo confucianism came in more straightforward more narrow as compared with classical confucianism technically speaking that was put in place by the Yuan dynasty before Ming, but Ming really scaled it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talked about the Ming emperor, Zhu Yuanzhang. Uh, there's another Ming emperor that you talk about quite a bit, you know, who ruled toward the end of the 16th century, yeah. uh, the Wanli emperor. Yeah. You make, uh, at various points in the book, a, a fascinating comparison between him and his near contemporary on the other side of the Eurasian landmass uh, in, in England, Tudor England, Henry VIII. They... Are, are just so different. One, you know, the Wanli emperor is so completely unconstrained compared to even this most autocratic British monarch, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I thought it was really illuminating. Again, it put me in mind of, of Fukuyama, um, you know, because this whole argument about institutions of political constraint is because, you know, the church figures so strongly in this argument that you make, you know, it, 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 it's the church that he has to battle so that he can divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry yeah. And Boleyn, and then you know he's he, he goes to war with this you know he's excommunicated. It's it's basically and, and mind you he's not he's not like a Lutheran. He's not this is not part of really this is sort of sitting a, alongside in parallel to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, yeah, really, really really fascinating. But China never had these religious institutions that challenged secular authority. And in fact, you go on to make the assertion that. China basically had a congenitally weak civil society all around. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? I mean, uh, uh, yeah, you go so far as to say that that imperial China and its communist successors are states without society. Yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That seems like a pretty bold claim. <laughs> yeah. So I yes and no, right? So maybe in the way that I put it is bold, uh, but the idea is is uh, is there. I, I think it's important to distinguish between organized society and and a society that is just there, right? So, you know, you always have households, right? For sure, you always have sure. commerce in China, and you have Buddhist religion, right? Imperial China, but the key thing is that those who are not organized. Right, and uh, so that's the distinction that I make between Europe and China, right? And China, Imperial China, 
never really had, at least as far as I know, any kind of organized religion with uh, its own organizations and finance and divisions. And Vatican used to have his army. <laughs> and so it was yeah. an incredibly organized apparatus, right? It had its own independent finance and universities in the West had their own operational independence, financial independence. So China had religions, China had intellectuals, but China didn't have organized intelligentsia, didn't have organized religion. So I really emphasize that organized rather than just the scattered elements. And I think that's true of China today, right? So I know there are Chinese who in China who believe in Christianity, who believe in Buddhism, but do you see them organized? Do you see them uh, having their own... Only by the state, right? Only by the state, yeah. So there's an office in the state council. Right, exactly. It's called something like Administration of Religious Affairs. And and by the way, this is a little bit on the side uh, to contrast China with Vietnam. When I was in Vietnam last time, I saw Catholic Church, uh, the, the churchgoers lining up outside of the Catholic Church on the streets with the candles, lit candles, praying. You never see that in China, right? So the priests right. in China, Catholic priests in China are not appointed by the Vatican. So so that's the claim that I make. I hope it's not terribly controversial because I think it's pretty factually valid uh, observation. Sure. I mean, yeah, China had merchants, but it didn't have powerful guilds, right? Yeah, I mean, they didn't have didn't guilds, have, right? right? So Western Europe had a lot of merchant guilds. And I even contrasted China with Russia, right? China had intellectuals. The whole thing about Kirti's system was to create educated, knowledgeable people. You know, you can argue about the things they are knowledgeable about. But in terms of literacy, it was incredibly substantial achievement. But China didn't have independent intellectuals. Even Russia had that, right? So I would argue that China is the most autocratic country in the world in that sense, right? It's a state prevailing without any society. And generations of Chinese rulers ensured that outcome, but also created system that would demolish these alternative paths of mobility. Right. I, I would say that, you know, even within that system, while the emperors surely still had final say, there was sort of this informal way by which intellectuals within the state, the ministers, they had kind of tacit access to channels of consultation and even remonstrance yeah, yeah. Uh, that were sort of codified culturally, but yeah, yeah, never formally. But it, it still had, I mean, the norms had some some weight, so it was possible to push back. I mean, you know, we have, you know, Hai Rui and, and people like that, right? Yeah, um, but but Kaiser, I, I agree with you completely, but I would argue formalism matters. Institutions matter. Yeah. So, so you had that. Norm, uh, I agree with right? that. And that, because the problem with with just having the norm is that it really depends on the emperors, right? And sure. in the contemporary situation, 
it really makes a difference whether the ruler is Deng Xiaoping, Zhao Ziyang, or Hu Yaobang, or Xi Jinping, right? But because yeah. of lack of formalism, because of lack of institutional safeguards, right? And the outcome can be very, very different depending on the preferences of the rulers. I would actually go even further than what I just said. I would argue that when you have only the norms of remonstrances without the institutions, essentially it matters where it is least important because, because you can remonstrate against the emperor who is most tolerant, right? They don't kill you instantaneously. Right. That <laughs> situation is actually least necessary in terms of having that system. The, you you need the remonstrances when you really have a bad emperor, <laughs> right? When you you, you need a, you need remonstrances today, and then you don't have it, and you don't yeah. have it, right? So you, whereas in the nineteen eighties, and I hope we get into that uh, in the nineteen eighties, you actually needed less, right? Precisely because yeah. the rulers then were more tolerant. So let's try to do that. Let's try to move forward in time a little bit. Um, I mean, it's, we've been bogged down between you know the the, the sway and and the main. We'll actually have to come back to this when we revisit your your database of Chinese inventions. But you know, you you have this interesting idea that the modern equivalent of the kuzhu is the GDP metric. Yeah. Uh, just a little. I went a million years ago when I was a graduate student. I was working on the emergence of technocracy. Yeah. In post Mao China. And I was looking at a lot of sort of historical antecedents for this. And I also lighted on, you know, the Kuju system as, as being really important. Sort of, you know, the old bottles into which, you know, the wine was poured. Now, there, there's these new bottles. But for me, that it was, you know, the, 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 the technocrats that you had to sort of prove your belief in the prevailing orthodoxy. Back then it was Confucianism. Now it was scientism. And have demonstrable mastery. You know, it, in this case, it was by having uh, uh, an advanced degree in engineering or in physics or in, in, in you know, yeah. in, in chemistry from a top-tier university. So I thought that was maybe where you were going to go when you were talking about, you know, and I saw the, the title of your, of your book. Uh, you went in a different direction. I thought it was really fascinating. How is the GDP metric sort of equivalent to Kuzhu? Yeah. Uh, so it is equivalent only in the performance measurement sense, right? So mm -hmm. the I think the idea is that when you run such a large system, when you run a small system, it doesn't really matter, but when you have a large organization, the imperative is to come up with consistent set of metrics, right? I mean, this is not terribly revolutionary idea. You know, look at the modern organizations Profit maximization, shareholder value. You know, we can criticize those, but the imperative of large organization is to have consistency in the metrics and in the performance measurements that you have. In the Kudzu system, it was the exam score, right? And it was objective, right? You. You, you either succeed on the test or you fail, right? And, and also we show in the book uh, as well as in the paper that I published with my uh, co-author, Claire Young, that, that the Kudzu system really worked in terms of 
being objective. So having consistency is very important because you promote the right people, you promote the right human capital. But the other element of it is that consistency also gives you legitimacy, right? So if you and I work for the same organization, I see Kaiser being promoted simply because you have long hair. And and then, you know, (laughs) so then I say, well, I cannot have long hair. So, you know, so it has to be something that, that both you and I can do, right? And, you know, maybe uh, get a client and, and convening conferences that are successful and things like that. So it also has this legitimizing effect. Legitimizing effect is important because of incentives, right? If you don't believe in the system, you don't participate in it. Right. So GDP, there are a lot of criticisms of, I, I, I also used to, criticize GDP system until you see the alternatives. Okay, so okay, so let's throw away the GDP as as the metric. Now what do you have? You have loyalty to the ruler, you have ideological <laughs> commitment, you have, you know, uh, mass campaigns, mass class campaign, struggles. <laughs> class struggles, right? So I, I think that's my my bottom line. If you accept autocracy as it is, you also have to accept a autocracy or a big organization has to pursue some sort of consistent metric. And GDP gives you as the best consistency as you can ever have because everything else is a crapshoot, right? And so GDP is yeah. much better than these other things. And look at what's happening in China today, right? So once the GDP as a metric is thrown out of the window, look at all these incredible misconduct and 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 really, really just undesirable behavior on the part of the local officials. I would, you know, I miss the days when GDP was held as the king. Uh, you know, once we shift the system from autocracy to democracy, we have, we can have a separate discussion, right? So. So my my <laughs> my larger premise is that once you have an autocracy, then a autocracy that pursues more consistent metric is a better autocracy than a autocracy that pursues inconsistent metric, right? Uh, and and better yet, it is a um, metric that incidentally or intentionally benefits the ordinary citizen. And I would say GDP by and large benefits the ordinary citizen. Yeah. I don't know if you've read Jeremy Wallace's book yet, but yeah, I think he, he makes broadly, yeah, a similar argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cornell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One thing I found really compelling uh, was your explanation of a phenomenon I've actually had a, a, a difficult time explaining, which is why the Chinese leadership is so technocratic except at the very top. <laughs> um, I mean, it comes down to the fact that, you know, regional power trumps ministerial power. And that is a, a really interesting argument that you make and you, you, you show the data. Uh, you just almost never see promotion into the Politburo Standing Committee from ministerial level, yeah. from the central level. It's always quite the norm to see promotion from leading provinces or, or autonomous regions into the party secretariat. Now, is there any evidence that this is done by design is this something that, that the CCP has sort of built in, that the, the organization department built in? Yeah. Uh, this granting of you know non-executive Politburo 
seats, especially to to provincial party secretaries? Yeah, so I have to say that I don't have immediate direct evidence on the intention of the CCP in terms of the design of that system, right? So, I mean, we as social scientists... It's so consistent, though. Yeah, so, yeah, that that's the key point, right? Because the data are so overwhelmingly consistent, the other side of the argument, which is that the system rewards these regional leaders, and, and look at the Soviet system, it's almost the opposite, right? So the system rewards the regional leaders rather than ministerial leaders who we usually think of as kind of technical technocrats. And my hypothesis, and it's only a hypothesis and conjecture rather than kind of documentary evidence, is that this is a system that motivates the regional leaders to perform. Right, because they are far away, and you could argue that it came from, you know, many many years ago, or even many centuries ago, when the system to monitor their conduct was very underdeveloped. Right, so the only, mm-hmm. I mean, there are two ways to, you know, Kaiser, if you're my, if you're my boss, there are kind of two ways you can control me. Right, why is that? You monitor my behavior, right? So you say, Yashan, come in, give me your report. You know, what did you do yesterday? What did you do last week? Right? So that's, you know, one way. And you say, okay, you get, you know, $5,000 more because you did this. The other way is that you created a system that I automatically behave in ways that are consistent with what you want me to do, right? So, Okay, so that's, a, you know, in economics, they are like stock options, right? So uh, sure. I, I don't really value you on a daily basis. But hey, I mean, if you can sell, you know, a million products, well, our stock prices are going to increase and you'll get a benefit from it, right? So I don't really need to evaluate you on a daily basis. That in and of itself is sufficient to motivate you. In a system that is large, that is complex, that is uh, informationally challenged, you see more use of incentives rather than the use of information collection. And I will put China in that in that category, right? So, so that's why you need to have a system where regional leaders, even without central officials looking down on you, right, over your shoulders, you say to yourself, "Gee, I mean, if I if I perform, then I would get promoted to the Politburo, right? So maybe that should be the way for me to do it, rather than kind of just seeking and maximizing your own self interest, right?" I'm wondering if you looked at historical antecedents for this, if you looked at during imperial dynasties, whether yeah. there was some system in place to, to co-opt regional leaders yeah. to get buy-in. Because, you know, China perennially suffered from this. You know, yeah, you yeah. look at the Tang after the Anlu- yeah. before the Anlushan Rebellion, but, uh, you know, this, this system of military governors is always problematic. Yeah. How do you get them, you know, sort of buying into and have their interests aligned with the center? Yeah, that's an excellent suggestion. I have not, 
uh, I definitely didn't in my in my book. Uh, there may be uh, other historical social scientists who have that. Definitely, that gave me an idea. I should look into it. Uh, I'm sure there were historical antecedents to that because the CCP doesn't get the system out of the blue. Um, it was not, as far as I know, it was not a conscious design, at least from what I have read. If you look at people like Chen Yun, you know, who was really in charge of personnel, and he, was, he wasn't really talking about the design issue. He was talking about the specific practices, moving people around. Right. That system did exist. That's old. Yeah, that's old. Yeah. That's definitely uh, old, right? So as a way to motivate and to reduce the incentive to misbehave. And, and in many ways, so there's a branch of economics called organizational uh, economics. A lot of these practices can be readily explained in terms of basic tenets in organizational economics. Organizational economics mm-hmm. is concerned with, you know, firms and business organizations, but you can kind of apply their insights to running a country, a, a top-down country. You 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 cannot really apply that to a democracy, right? Um, right, uh, right. Because democracy, the, the elections and uh, elections of governors, so so it doesn't really apply. But when you have a top-down system like a corporation. The insights of organization and economics can apply. And this is exactly what I did in that chapter. Do I have direct exactly, evidence? Yeah. No, I don't. I have to be very honest. One of the really interesting findings that you came up with, I thought anyway, was how wealth doesn't just fail to correlate with could you outcomes. It actually seems to correlate negatively <laughs> yeah. with could you outcomes. I mean, so what do you think explains that? That was fascinating. I maybe unpack a little bit. I mean, I think maybe there will be some people who will, will quibble with, for example, your your proxy measure for wealth, which sure. was number of wives. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so that that's a good uh, that's a good challenge and and pushback. Um, but but the problem with the historical data is that you you work with what you have, and you you don't sure. work with what you want to have. And, and, and so my philosophy is, okay, so this is what we have. Let's see what we can make any use of it until the critics have different data and you know maybe our work can be validated or can be refuted. But I'm not very happy with people who say, oh, this is just... The, the wealth measure, which is the number of wives, uh, is not the right measure. Okay, so tell me, give me your data, and I will run the uh, right. So I, I, yeah. So that's it's the same thing that applies to the historical database on technology, and, and people dismiss it uh, not because they have their own data; it's just somehow they dismiss it. Yeah, my theory was that if you have multiple wives, you, you've got other things to do besides study for the could you. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> well so, so there are historical accounts of having multiple wives. The first wife, multiple wives may not be the right way to think about it. It's really wives and concubines, right? Concubinage is an economic phenomenon. Uh, so, so, so we know that from historical research. 
So it's not all of her plausibility to say that uh, multiple wives do indicate some sort of level of wealth, right? And and yeah. so that that's one data point that we have in the in the data on Kuju examinees. You know, we don't have really data on land holding on on, on those things. But let me explain the idea, right? So the Kuju system performed two functions. One traditional function and the function that many people are familiar with is it is selecting human capital for the imperial bureaucracy. I, I think that's a very important function. But what Claire and I provided in our paper is an additional function. It is not to select certain people, right, from an emperor's perspective. So who are the people you don't want to be in the system? People who have independent wealth, who can challenge you, right. who are powerful, right? Unlike the European system, the European system had troubles with nobility, right? Henry VIII, you know, uh, Catherine the Aragon, she came from a very prominent family. Um, and sure. Anne Boleyn came from a very prominent family. You don't see that in the Chinese imperial Yeah, I've seen the Tudors. Yeah, you, you don't see that in the Chinese imperial system. Uh, what the Chinese emperors wanted to do was to maximize the status difference between him and the, re- the, and the rest, right? So, so yeah. the, the, the argument we provided is that Kuju's system also systematically deselected those people who could potentially pose a threat to the emperor. And those are the rich people, right, the right. landlords, and things like that. You know, that's, again, it's a hypothesis. Uh, it, yeah. it is consistent with the statistical evidence that we looked at. But, you know, I'm definitely open to other interpretations and to other uh, data sets. Yeah. You're also probably familiar with that argument that, you know, the, the whole sort of burgeoning bourgeois was sort of bought off by, I mean, be, because what you did if you were a young salt merchant and you had any money is yeah. you spent that money to, to educate your son yeah. because ultimately you wanted him to climb that one available ladder of success yeah, in, yeah. in Imperial China. That, that's the yeah. lure of country system, right? You Exactly, exactly. You, you maximize the... So, so going back to our earlier discussion, could your system monopolize your time, your energy, your attention... And your life goals, right? Your ambition, I, I, yeah. Exactly. Your ambition. I challenge anybody to think of a system anywhere else in the world that can do that on a consistent basis for such a large number of people and for so long, right? Church at one point in the West probably did that. Yeah, but, I was going to say. You know, yeah. but it gave away to other things, right? It gave away to commerce, it gave away to universities. A giveaway to politicians. So it, it's just, I, I find it difficult to come up with a, with a alternative, with, with, a, with a system elsewhere in the world that, that rivals the power and the allure of Kuju's system. Absolutely. So one argument that you make in the book is that the sequence of politics and bureaucracy, the development of politics and bureaucracy really matters. And and you argue that 
China developed bureaucracy first, yeah. whereas in the West, there was already a very robust politics before yeah. the creation of civil service bureaucracies, and that they were thus very constrained by, by politics. Now, that doesn't strike, I think, all readers as a good thing, prima facie. Right? Make, make the case then. Why, in fact, was it a blessing that bureaucracy came after politics in the West? Uh, well, so I don't really know why. I'm just observing the difference, and 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 there I let me credit to Fukuyama. I think I think he made maybe other scholars made made a similar point. Uh, but I kind of maybe I spend more paragraphs on this than than they did. I think it matters in the following sense, right? Um, when a bureaucracy happened in the middle of other contending forces, it was just one of those forces. So essentially, by, by either by design or by default, you have a bureaucracy that is competing for intention, competing for money, competing for tal- talents with other uh, uh, forces in the society, with other institutions, that is a definition of plural, pluralism, right? And sure, and sure. so essentially, you kind you you are dealt with a deck that you have, and so the bureaucracy is not able to overwhelm the political system, right? Bureaucracy, you know, we we often complain about bureaucracy, right? When you go and register for your automobile. You just don't yeah. like the experience, and so so bureaucracy has a tendency of being very rigid, very stiff, very unfriendly, you know, very dictatorial, and things like that. All of that that's true. But imagine a bureaucracy that has all these elements, but there's nothing else that uh, that constrains the bureaucracy, and that's China, right? Whereas as yeah, much as yeah. you don't like RMV. It is, you know, one piece of your life that you have to put up with the bureaucracy. But everything else, you don't really have to put up with it, right? So it matters in that sense, right? And uh, it matters because uh, bureaucracy in the West added to the plurality, whereas bureaucracy in China subtracted plurality. And the economic consequences, the political consequences of that difference are incredibly large. And we are still feeling it today. Yeah, yeah. You know, I personally favor the Western system. Let me, let me be very clear. I, I want to be transparent about my priors. But I also admire the Chinese system. Any system that, that is so powerful in the Asian times, without modern communication, without modern system, it is, you know, you, you really have to admire it. So I admire it in a technical sense. I don't admire it for the effects, the stagnations and, and, and the repressions that it produced. Well, I mean, it was so effective that it was bound to outlive its usefulness, I think, and, and yeah. uh, have cast a very, very long shadow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, that, that's, I think, the essence of your book uh, is that you know these these things, the things you, you you talk about in East, they worked so well that they continue to to yeah. to exert a lot of influence. 
there's a couple of sections in your book where you go into stuff that I find delightful, but I think other readers, some other readers are going to, you know, it's going to give them pause. You introduce, for example, Joseph Henrik's theory about how literacy actually rewires yeah. our brains, changes yeah. the neurobiology of people in the West. Uh, part of what turned them weird, which has always been one of my favorite acronyms, you know, <laughs> uh, Western educated, industrialized, rich, and uh, democratic, right? Um, there's another bit where you talk about Nisbet, um, you know, about the, the geography of thought, which I thought was a marvelous book as well. Yeah. You know, but th- these things are, are, I mean, there are people who, who are pretty dismissive of, of this kind of stuff. It's too speculative. I mean, there is, of course, a lot of speculation. It's still, it seems like to me a, a very interesting place to look. But you, you talk about this, um, the question of why literacy, we're talking about uh, Henrik here, why literacy seems to have made this change to Westerners, but not to highly literate Chinese people preparing for, you know, the Kuzhu exams. Can you talk about why you see literacy within the state, that's, you know, literacy in the service of the state uh, as quite different from literacy or numeracy that exists outside the state or even in opposition to the state? Because, you know, Henrik, again, just says, you know, literacy basically was the foundation for this sort of oppositional, democratic, uh, adversarial politics. Yeah. So, Kaiser, first of all, I do not dismiss that kind of research. I, I actually I have tremendous respect for Richard Nesbitt and Joseph Irich. I, I love that stuff, too, just to be clear. I love that. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. I, I it, You know, you can quibble, right, because it's based on experimental research rather than real-life research. The, the beauty of experimental research is that it it sort of zeroes in on the essence because you can have many, many controls. So the factor that you want to really understand can be isolated from these other things. Whereas in real life, real history, you can't really do that because everything is moving, you know, simultaneously. You don't really know what's going on. So, so the essence uh, of that type of research, I, I really, I, I just, you know, if there's one thing that I regret is in graduate school is, is not having studying, uh, having studied more of that stuff. But, but what's interesting is that Joseph Herridge, he was talking about literacy, having this biological effect on human brains, liberalizing, inquisitive, challenging the authority, but we don't see that in China at all, right? So I uh, quoted uh, work by uh, Evelyn Rosky mm-hmm. that shows that you know China actually had decent literacy, not at the same level as uh, Europe, but it was pretty impressive during the Qing Dynasty. And yet you don't really see this liberalizing effect. I mean, one piece of evidence that you don't see the liberalizing effect is Kuzhu system itself. It was never reformed to extend the suffrage to the female gender, right? So by definition, it was never, it never became liberal. So how come that Chinese literacy didn't have this liberalizing effect? You know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, so I cannot quibble with the claim that literacy changed human brains. And I suspect that the Kirji literacy also changed the Chinese 
brains. But I added a condition to Heinrich's claim, right? Heinrich was talking about literacy in a liberalizing pluralistic society that is Europe, right? So in that sense, I quibble with his claim, right? And so weird W, you know, represents the plurality, pluralism, West and West, right? So, so that was a key contextual condition that he took as a result, whereas I took that as a yeah, condition yeah. and cause. So if you don't have this W, right, he meant West, but but we, we could interpret it not as a Western Europe, but, but the set of conditions that Western Europe had, right, political competition, economic competition, ideological competition. Without that, the changing brains don't produce these other effects, right, such as economic growth, such as cognitive revolutions. So that's how I reinterpreted Henry's uh, insight, right, and, and but then look at what happened in China and look at what happened in East Asia after the Second World War, right? So, Kaiser, you, you are familiar with the pessimism expressed by Max Weber about Confucianism and, you know, sure. Confucianist countries, the culture cannot grow the economy. That's just manifestly nonsense, right? False, right? This is nonsense. But the thing is that East Asia only began to grow when East Asia had the right conditions, right? Entrepreneurship, globalization, and in the case of China, economic reforms. Then the brain wiring probably began to produce the effect. So, so that's how I kind of reconciled uh, Joseph Henry's observation right. with the observation of East Asia. With all due respect to him, he's talking about a, a change. He's, it's, it's not purely experimental. He's making an historical argument because, you know, this is situated in the 16th and 17th centuries, right? This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the Gutenberg Revolution, and he's talking about the Protestant Reformation, which they go hand in hand in Europe. And, you know, on top of that, look, this is a, a period of, of endemic religious war, of the cataclysmic 30-year war. And it, it's just, yeah, there's there's so many other threads that, that to, to look at that are happening at the same time as we're seeing literacy take off. So I think that he's maybe yeah. over-attributing to just literacy itself, something that, that had maybe multiple causes. Anyway. Yeah, but 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 Kaiser, I I'm willing to defend him a little bit. I, I you are right that the specific observation about the Protestant Reformation was not based on experimental research, but the idea that being repeatedly exposed to reading rewired your brain that was experimental research. He applied that insight backward in history yeah, to Reformation, right? So I'm willing to go along with that. Uh, you know, he's a biologist, I'm not. So I, you're right that there are other things going on that reinforce that biological change, but that's not that different from what I argued in my book, which is that 
there were other things going on in China that counteracted a biological right. change in the human brain induced by the Kozhu literacy. So I take the experimental research seriously. I, yeah. I, I, I do believe that they you know he's right about that. But I'm, you know, again, I'm not a biologist. So I'm, I, don't, I don't think I'm, you need to subscribe to ideas about cognitive rewiring. You know, the literacy and numeracy changed us psychologically or physiologically, rather. Um, you don't need to subscribe to that in order for your argument to work, though. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you go on and you, you say, you're right, right. Things like work ethic yeah. and, and memory are the results yeah, of yeah. You know, biological yeah. But anyway, actually, let me go back a little bit to could you and scale and scope. I and mean, this is another thing that occurred to me as I was reading it. Just, I just thought of it just now. Um, when you're looking at the, the, the pressure to create scaling tools as could you, Rather than just start with with the creation of these tools and, and say, okay, this is why China was able to scale, I, I I think there are other variables we could look at, like just simply the geography of the North China Plain, right? That there are no natural bounds to, you know, you, you sort of have to have large territory under control because there are not, you know, natural boundaries like you would have no, no major, you know, mountain ranges or, or, or gigantic impassable forests like you would have in Europe. It was just one large, extremely fertile plain that was going to sustain a large population with no natural barriers. So it was going to, there's sort of a natural size to that polity that would make necessary scaling tools rather than the other way around. In other words, you know, you don't need, could you, in order to have a large polity under one central control, but to have one polity under central control. It helps to have something like Kuji. No, I agree. I, I personally agree. I, 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 yeah. So the, I, I think it is, is, is not just a quantitative observation, but a qualitative observation, right? So to, to govern such a large polity in such a consistent manner, right, and retaining the essential features of the autocracy for such a long time, right? I would argue that those have to do have something to do with the scaling power of country system, right? So otherwise you ended up like India, right? So it's also a large, you know, continental size uh, country, but you have all these kind of differences here and there and because there's not one unifying mechanism, uh, so um, yeah, so or United States, right? So it, it's also a large country, but then you have federalism, you have very different religions, and you have incredible level of diversity. So you can you can have a large country, but you can have a large country with such a single mindedness, uh, homogeneity. That that's what. China is right, so it's not just the fact that it is a large uh, political system. I want to talk a little bit about the 1980s and the movement toward more scope and more pluralism that you talk about. That ends really with Tiananmen in, in 1989. You know, this is something that, that's debated endlessly: how pluralistic was China just between 78 and and, and for that decade until 89? What, what's your take on that? Um, do you think that this was really a period where scope conditions were developed that really kind of helped China along after 92, after the, the revival of reforms? 
Yeah. So I think on that, maybe my own thinking has also evolved over a period of time. You may or may not know my last book, Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics, yeah. talked about 1980s and 1990s, the Shanghai model, all of that. So I have to say that I find it surprising this time around to identify sources of political and institutional heterogeneities that existed in the 1980s to a level that I previously didn't recognize, right? So not, not just ideologies, right? And the freedom of expressions. And I, and I believe China in the 1980s, um, with, without the social media, social media, obviously, but that's a, that's a technological thing because they allow people to post ideas that are different from official ideology. But in a kind of pre-internet era, China was quite impressive in the 1980s in, in terms of different ideas contending with each other, calls for political reforms. I was impressed with that before. But this time around, I'm even more impressed with the political diversity. If you look at the political system, right, you have like five different individuals occupying five centers of power, the secretary of the CCP, the premier, the president of the country, and the chairman of the Military Affairs Commission, and the chairman of the central advisory central advisor so so hope hopefully we can get into that i i actually think that's a critical yeah it no longer exists it's been it's been it's been and no longer exists right so and then you look at the uh political landscape after 1993 it became much more centralized right basically it was a rule of two people the party secretary and the premier and that's it. Rather than divide it among five, now you have some division between the two. And then over a period of time, under Xi Jinping, obviously, yeah, you have a premier. But <laughs> as we know, that the premier is not is not terribly powerful. So I have to say, you know, even though this is pretty obvious, I didn't think about that issue before I wrote this book. And, uh, and how Tiananmen basically demolished that level of political plurality, right? How real that plurality was, we can have a debate in the 1980s and early 1990s. But I would make the following argument. If the, so the, going back to our early discussion about formalism, if the institutions persisted over time, right, the five centers of power, if that persisted, I bet China would be very, very different from mm. it is today. Just, just imagine if you have a powerful central advisory commission, people like Zhu Runji, think about 2012, pe people like Zhu Runji were on it, Jiang Zemin on it, right? Uh, Hu Jintao, obviously, right? And think about after the 20th Party Congress, Li Keqiang and all, the, all these people are, are on it. 
exercising legitimate voices and says, I think, you know, China will be still an autocracy, probably, but it will not be the kind of one-man unconstrained rule by by one leader. I, I, I'm willing to make that counterfactual point. And in my book, I argue that China really changed everything. Um, and politically, economically, we can have a debate, right? So in my 2008 book, I was quite negative on the economic aspects. But I, I begin to see, you know, the it was a more of a balance. Uh, the leaders in the 1990s did globalize right. Chinese economy, but they retrenched the rural uh, reforms, rural entrepreneurship. So it's kind of a wash um, rather than a unidirectional effect. Globalization, uh, international scientific exchange, a whole bunch of these other things persisted after 89 or, or even you know, took off after 89. Yeah, they persisted. They actually, they actually accelerated. Accelerated after. Yeah. And so these provide sufficient scope conditions so that at least up until yeah. five years ago, China still continues to have these. Uh, and you know this is this is a, a major argument of, of your book. That's right. In the interest of time, though, I do want to skip forward a little bit. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about absolutely everything in your book, um, and I want to talk about Tullock's curse, the great Achilles heel, yeah. the vulnerability of the system that you talk about, because you spend a good amount of time on this succession, the succession issue. Can you talk about Gordon Tullock, his ideas about uh, the succession problem and how that is endemic to authoritarian regimes? And then maybe yeah. how China has thus far been able to stave it off. Yeah, so Gordon Tullock uh, was a very interesting academic. Um, I think he was a lawyer by training, but he wrote about economics and political science. One of his least known books is um, Succession Issues in Autocracy. His basic argument is that autocracies do not get successions right because of wrong incentives once you nominate somebody then the loyalty goes to that person uh, as an autocrat you don't like it right so and and also the nominated person has this constant fear of being denominated i don't know if that's the word but but because autocrat has such a power and the other problem in that situation is that the uh, the current leader has a incentive to observe the performance of the nominated person so he has to kind of do it early because right. otherwise the, the person doesn't have a track history but once you do that you reduce your own power right so 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 you are in a very kind of perilous situation you nominate, then you nominate early, then you reduce your own power. You don't nominate, well, then maybe somebody who succeeds you is not the person you want, right? right? So he's sort of kind of dealing with these dilemmas and problematic uh, uh, problematic situations. And his argument is that the autocracies tend to fail most likely when they don't handle successions very so little argument you'll hear from me on that. <laughs> yeah, so I take that insight to look at China. And and there, uh, I made a, a distinction between 
other political practices that we talked about, rotation and, and those things, that the CCP has learned from history. But the problem here is that succession is not something they can learn from history, right? Because the Imperial China had hereditary successions. A CCP, at least so far, although North Korea, they, 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 <laughs> they have done it. Uh, so far, they, they don't have it. Right? No, so no, this, this is perilous because you have to kind of invent the method as you go and you don't have prior experiences to borrow from. And look at the history of communist China. It's, it's a pretty dismal record, I would argue, right? Under Mao and uh, under Deng Xiaoping. We're all put in mind of Lin Biao by Prigozhin's... Uh, wow, well, yeah. Lin Biao, yeah. Prigozhin, yeah, exactly, right? So the, 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 the plane crash. And Liu Shaoqi, poor Liu yeah, Shaoqi. died in know, prison. And, and poor, poor Hua Guofeng... Zhao Ziyang, yeah. you know, it, it's just, it's just, it's a dismal record, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Until they figured out, okay, the term limit is the way to do it. And, you know, I have to give that to Zhang Xiaoping. And the term limit, the age, mandatory age requirement. Again, unfortunately, these were just norms, and not actual. Well, no, 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 no. That was in the constant. Well, the, the age retirement is, is norm. But the uh, the term limits were, term limit is in the constitution. Not not for the but 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 the problem is that yeah for the presidency but not uh, for the chairmanship. Uh, correct, correct, yeah. and also you know Chinese constitution you you can rewrite it pretty pretty easily. So <laughs> apparently you can. Uh, one thing they did learn from history, though, one thing that they did learn. I mean, they learned this, you know, from from the you know, from the Anlushan Rebellion, and they learned this, you know, from uh, the founding emperor of the Song Dynasty is how to subordinate the military, right? This is something you talk about yeah, in the book yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So so the military has uh, inferior uh, status. Uh, it, it, part of it is because you, you elevated the mental power over military power. But part of it is the history, the lesson from the history. And Chinese military uh, is firmly under the control of the CCP. So and far, this is yeah. why the succession, so so far, right? Succession failures have not kind of translated into catastrophe, right? Yeah. My worry, though, is, you know, to some extent, the military now is more powerful than before and, and also under a leader who has elevated the importance of war and that elevates the importance of the military. My worry is that as ideology is declining, as economic growth is is slowing down, my fear is that China is moving toward a more militaristic autocracy, similar to Latin America. And coupled with succession difficulties, I you know, I don't really know how to think about that, right? When you have more powerful military when you have economic difficulties, when you have succession complications, yeah, they're going to have to deal with the succession sooner and later. I mean, that's just, you can't really avoid that issue. I think it's going to become a very complicated situation going down the road. Yeah, I fear and it will. I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. So, but I fear for that scenario. Let's talk about the T in East, about technology. I, you set out to answer in your own way the 
famous Needham question. I think most of our listeners will be familiar yeah. with, with Joseph Needham. You know, we can maybe briefly ID him here for those who, who don't. Uh, he was a British biochemist. He had a romantic dalliance with a, a Chinese graduate student of his name, Lu Guijin. I think her name was Lu Guijin. Yeah. Uh, he became then fascinated with the Chinese language uh, and then with science and, in China. And then before his death in 1995, he actually oversaw the publication of some six volumes, most of them in, in multiple parts. Uh, of this magisterial science and civilization in China, which you are now intimately familiar with. <laughs> the, the Needham question is really, you know, why the scientific and industrial revolutions took place not in China, but in Europe. You know, why yeah, despite, yeah. you know, China's, you know, quite prodigious advances in science during, um, you know, sort of up till the late medieval period. Um, so let's talk about this. You created a database of inventions, uh, which was, just enormous, and you did it in the most interesting way. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, and why you wanted to do this in the first place? Well, so so first of all, uh, I'm collaborating with a number of uh, Chinese uh, professors on a book project. Uh, we have finished about uh, two out of six chapters. It's under contract with Princeton University Press. Just on the Needham question, we don't deal with these other you know exam and autocracy is the so. I think by being a professor at at MIT, I uh, I, I got very interested in. Te- I'm, I'm not a tech person, unlike you, right? So I, I'm not a tech person. I'm not an entrepreneur, and <laughs> neither am I. Really. But just to uh, well, you know, you have a you have a history, and and technology and science uh, have played such a large role. So I got interested in in that topic. But my previous interest was uh, understanding the science and technology in CCP. But I began to really think historically about why China was once so advanced in technology and why it simply disappeared as a uh, technological power. So that's a Needham question. Right, and Needham asked that question very forcefully in 1969. And I began to review the literature, begin to, began to read. I mean, I wasn't impressed with the answers, mostly not because the answers themselves are right or wrong. It's because I don't really know whether they're right or wrong. <laughs> it's just all kind of speculative. It's all very vague and broad generalizations and Chinese culture about lack of scientific attitude and this and that. You know, all of that can be correct, except there's no proof of that, right? So there's no kind of, there's no evidence whether or not any of that really explains anything. And also the other thing is when you look into this literature a little bit deeper, even the ones written by Needham himself, exactly when Chinese technology began to decline, it's very fussy, right? So what Needham said is, oh, it began to decline in 17th century, 16th century. If you look at the kind of the empirical graph he constructed, it, it it wasn't constructed on the basis of data. It was constructed out of his own mind and it was really a mental graph rather than an empirical graph. Sure. And that's not really, I mean, he's a biochemist, uh, 
but his pronouncements are not data driven. No. It's it's totally understandable because he's he's a towering figure. I have enormous respect for him. You know the the kind of collections that he managed to create. It's just unbelievable, right? So so don't take me wrong. I I have absolutely enormous respect for Joseph Newton. But I think we can do better. Oh, let me put it in a different way. We we can we can build on the work by Needham and others and take it to the next level, which is data driven. Right. But then how do you do it? Right. So six years well, actually more than six years ago, uh, I got money. And by the way, uh, our applications for National Science Foundation, both in US and China, were rejected. So I raised money from private sector to support digitization of the entries recorded by Nathan and by Chinese historians of science. Right? And the result is this database of over 10,000 entries spanning 5th century BCE all the way to the end of the 19th century. So, so this is the basis of our claim that Chinese science and technology were most advanced when China had more plurality, right? Right. Before the Sui dynasty. And that is 1,000 years earlier than what historians commonly believe the timing of Chinese technological decline. They, they usually say 17th century, 16th century. If you actually look at Needham's uh, dating of that, it, it's really based on the rise of Western science rather than the decline of the Chinese science. Yeah, that's so that's what I suspect, not terribly. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's not really, really. I mean, he, and that made him argue further that Chinese failed to develop science, and that was the reason why they couldn't develop industrial revolution. And that, that argument itself is problematic and the empirical basis on which uh, to make that argument is, at least if we go with our data set, is, is not correct. So your data set, though, is a list of actual inventions that are listed in Needham and in other sources. And your criterion for yeah. how, why they are worth calling an invention is simply because Needham says so. I Yeah, so I have no independent capability sure. to second guess Needham. And, you know, people push back on, uh, on that. All I can say is, as academics, all we can do is we build um, the work of the prior generations of scholars. Yeah, right? I have, I have if, no objection to that. It, my, my, here's, here's, yeah. here's where I would push back a little bit, though. So you, you demonstrate a really strong correlation between periods of, of maximum inventiveness in China with periods of, yeah. of decentralization, of political fragmentation of fracture, yeah. right? So we have the spring and autumn period. Yeah. Uh, actually, that goes uh, that starts a little before, you know, so that's seven seventy one to five what five eighties BC. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but you know, the Warring States period, and then the, the Three Kingdoms, and and you know, the Northern and Southern dynasties, dynasties. Then you know, Nan Mei Chao, Liu Chao, Shi Liu Guo. So these are also periods of endemic warfare. Yeah, 
And and I suspect that we'd see a pretty strong correlation in Europe also between technological inventiveness and the prevalence of warfare. So yeah. are you making, I mean, is, is warfare just another scope condition to you? I mean, because look, you yeah, do yeah. grant that the, the Han Sui Interregnum, as you call it, uh, it, it was a period that had maybe, you know, too damn, damn many scope conditions. I mean, it was violent. It was extremely violent. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if you f- have a way to, to include warfare as, as a driver or to, to deal with that in some yeah. way. Yeah, so that's an excellent question and an excellent pushback. Um, and uh, it, the, the correlation is there, right? I'm not going to deny it. Uh, but let me sort of acknowledge that and then, and then, and then uh, add a number of other points. One is that there was a later period when China also fell into disunity. And it's called the Wu Dai Shi Guo, right? So it's only 60 uh, years, though. That, that, yeah, that's true. It was, but 53 uh, it years. Was, it was shorter. Yeah. It was shorter and than the uh, Han Sui Interregnum. Um, you, you, first of all, you don't see this burst of um, inventiveness during that period of time. Maybe it's so short. Maybe that that's the that's the reason. Yeah. Uh, but the Wu Dai era already had uh, ideological closure as compared with the uh, Han Sui Interregnum. So, but that's a that's a weaker defense and uh, by the way we are working on these issues now in our current book in the book that you read we we i didn't go into that there are other points that i want to make the other is that war definitely makes a country a period more inventive by demanding military technology that's true but think about that statement. That's all on the demand side, right? It's not automatic that the supply will be there, right? So as we all know from technology, the simple existence of demand doesn't always translate into supply. When you have the right conditions, like coming up with the new ideas and, and, and things like that, right? So think about the Manhattan Project, right? You have just imagine that Hitler didn't prosecute Jewish scientists, and you don't have the Neil Bohr, you don't have those people coming to the United States, right? Uh, just the fact that you have the war may not have led to the success of the Manhattan Project. I mean, the, so the human creativity, the scientific power, and so we need both. We need the supply conditions, and the supply conditions, I would argue, are one, government support, Manhattan Project, right, government support, and the other is the scope, right? So I'm reading Oppenheimer's book, and it was just fascinating how these scientists debated with each other and contested each other in terms of their different ideas. Yeah, yeah. So demand conditions do not, translate automatically into supply conditions. Supply conditions require human ingenuity, creativity, and, and those things. The other thing that we can do, and we're 
And to do that is to categorize technology into military technology and non-military technology, right? If the Hansui Interregnum was as inventive in non-war-related technologies, then it cannot be totally explained by war, right? So, 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 Kaiser, I agree with you 100%. I agree with, you know, there are, there are people who made that point about Europe because Europe was divided. They constantly fought with each other and, and therefore they needed the military technology. So I agree 100% with that, right? But there are other non-military technologies that Europe also pioneered and, and, and that capability to come up with those technologies is a function of something else, right? So, so this is probably not a very clear explanation. Uh, it's kind of clear in my mind, but maybe I didn't <laughs> express it as clear enough. earlier. In any case, we, we both yeah. agree that the Tang, which of course follows on this way, is, it strikes a very nice balance where you have both kind of yeah. scope conditions, but sufficient political control. So it's a, a nice balance between scale and scope. Yeah. You know, so I guess you ask the tantalizing question, which is the driver for the, the, the balance of the book is like, is is the reform era CCP like the Tang in that respect? Uh, was yeah, it yeah. autocratic and repressive, but still managed to have scope conditions? I, I obviously thought so. I mean, during that reform period, that's what I named my band, Tang Dynasty. And it was Sort of for that exact reason, without you know, invoking scale and scope, I, I thought this is an, an, a, another period of hopefully cultural effervescence that that was driven by a spirit of cosmopolitanism and openness. But anyway, let's talk about the 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 because you you make this argument. I think a lot of people would probably be surprised. I, I certainly agree that China's technological progress under the CCP during the reform period was not just a matter of scale and scale alone. Uh, that it's actually in the blurred line between sort of the state and private sector, you, you, you argue instead that, yeah. that during this period of reform and opening, China had scope conditions that were different than ones we ordinarily envisioned. So walk us through, what were the scope conditions of China during the reform and opening period? Yeah. So we, we do come back to this definition of the reform era. Uh, I believe that era to be from 1978 to 2018. So so when I talk about the reformist period, I was talking specifically about those years rather than since 2018. And 2018, obviously, is the year that, that Xi Jinping abolished the, the term limits. So that, that's why the end yeah. of reform. And, yeah. yeah, so that was a kind of almost like an operational definition uh, of the end of the reform era. Sure. I think there were several elements. One was critically academic collaboration. When I was doing the research for that chapter, I was really genuinely surprised to find out that China began to engage in scientific collaborations before economic reforms, before uh, economic opening to FDI, to foreign trade. That's right. Very early on, you know, it was probably not something that people pay attention to, but but I did. You know, just the sequencing of it was so striking. China began to send students to America before the two countries established diplomatic relationship or re-established the diplomatic relationship. China signed agreements with 
France on scientific uh, agreements. Before China promulgated uh, joint venture laws, and so but that was like head on uh, a very forefront of Deng Xiaoping's reform uh, agenda. Most people think about that as kind of human capital way, right? Training the students and, and things like that, getting foreign education. I, I agree with that, but think about the implication of that. When you move a scientist from Tsinghua University to MIT, she is going to have the academic freedom of MIT. She gets trained at MIT, probably a, a more powerful scientific institution. Definitely there's that human capital effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But she gets to enjoy the academic freedom of the West. right? So, so this is an argument that I made in that chapter, which is that China succeeded because China, even though it didn't have academic freedom itself, it can borrow part of it by collaboration. right? And then I can extend that analogy to commerce and technology. Think about Huawei. It was a, the success of Huawei was a was a was a result of collaboration. They collaborated with French companies, British companies, American companies. Its mobile phone has excellent camera. It collaborated with the German uh, is it Leica or Zeiss? Zeiss I, yeah, I, I yeah, forgot. Yeah. But, but Zeiss, right? So it 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 is a result of collaboration rather than going it alone, right? So this kind of insularity idea. Oh, China succeeded because of the whole government approach. There's that. You know, I'm not going to say that's that's not important. But the scale only succeeded in areas where you also had the scope, right? And if you look at the high-tech sectors, right, high-tech startups, they borrowed the legal and financial autonomy of Hong Kong and other overseas territories, right? And this is very, very different from the view that China succeeded only because of government support. They succeeded in the context of globalization. They succeeded in the context of academic, commercial globalization and institutional globalization and in the, in the context of government support. So it is it is not the opposite of convention argument. It is adding a extra layer of explanation to the as compared with the conventional explanation. And now the issue now is now you only have the government support left, right? <laughs> so uh, can you can you carry on the same rate of success as before? My 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 conjecture is no. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who would say that they've you know they've kind of past a critical mass already where uh, they've enjoyed those scope conditions for long enough that the foundations are in place that maybe it can sort of run on fumes for a while still and continue to deliver. Well, I mean, how how do you do that with semiconductor? I I, I don't get it. Uh, so they, it is a highly collaborative industry. Speaking of collaboration, I'm, I'm glad to see that the Biden administration at least decided to to provisionally renew the U.S.-China Science and Technology Agreement for six months, but 
gosh, I mean, it's imperiled yeah. again. Uh, very worried. And and I'm doing a show about that uh, very, very soon. I I applaud the, the decision. I, I think doing science is a open activity. It benefits the mankind. It benefits everybody. Uh, there's there's no reason that we cannot collaborate with China on scientific research. You know, technology, sensitive technology, we can have a debate. But in terms of open science, we should collaborate with anybody because that's beneficial. So you talk about how China has this knack for, for scaling up, scaling over, and scaling fast. And you offer some really interesting examples of, of projects uh, that, that you know, kind of embody this ability. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, I, I gave a number of examples. Uh, one is the health code, right? Right, um, sure, the COVID health codes, yeah. Yeah, COVID health code. You know, some people are wary of a negative on, on, on that. But during the early days of the pandemic, it really, really worked in terms of more targeted uh, quarantine, right? And it was a classic example of being able to scale, but also being able to collaborate. One of the things that people don't mention very often is that the technological solutions were provided by the private sector. That's right, Tencent and Alibaba, yeah. By, by Tencent and Alibaba. And it was not provided by the government. And usually we think about that, we, we celebrate that as a successful example of private public sector collaboration, right? <laughs> and the other, well, but, but Xi Jinping may have a different idea. Um, the other example I gave is uh, 5G, and that, again, is a collaboration. Huawei is a private sector company, and government policy, obviously, is public, right? So that's a, that's a collaboration. And I have fundamental problems with the claim that Chinese successes are all a result of scale. Right. If you look at these examples in great detail, scale is there, but scope is there as well. Right. So I don't want to say government support doesn't matter or even counterproductive. Right. So I'm not a kind of a Hayakian uh, believer, I, 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 I do believe in the power of the government. But the power of the government is important and effective only in the context of collaborations and scope conditions. Right? Historically speaking, that's also true. Right? We have a measure of government support for inventions by looking at the, at the proportion of inventors being on the government payroll. And that has been very substantial. But then China began to decline when the scope conditions disappeared. So I want to leave most of the rest of the book, the conclusions that you draw about where China is right now and the precarious future of the whole East system that you talk about, you know, because of Xi Jinping's virtual elimination of, of scope conditions. I want to encourage you to talk about that when you deliver your keynote address at our conference and leave something for, for that. Meanwhile, though, there is one issue that I, I want to push back on and then one issue that I, I want to ask you about. One is when you talk about Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. You argue that he's painted himself into a corner by pursuing anti-corruption 
to the extent that he has them. He's made it basically impossible for him to step down. He's got, for having purged 4 million party members, he's, or f- investigated at least 4 million party members, he's now got too many enemies that, you know, stepping down is, is basically impossible. But was a, a rebalancing, favoring scale over scope made necessary just by the, the sheer extent of corruption in 2012 when he took office? I mean, it was, it, it, it seems to me like a surgical approach, like the one that prevailed during, you know, C's predecessors where they would do occasional anti-corruption drives instead of this now, what, seven or eight year long campaign. Um <laughs> Gosh, no, more. It's 10 years now. That's a 10-year ten ten campaign. 10-year campaign. Yeah. Um, would that even have been close to sufficient to put a dent in the problem? I mean, I feel like, sure, he, he painted himself in a corner, but what else could he have done? Oh, I think there are, there are other things that he could have done. And and while minimizing the political liabilities, hmm. first of all, we all know that if you have to purge four million officials, it is a systemic problem, not an individual problem, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. is there any is there anything that he has done that suggests a systemic approach? I would argue no, hmm. right? So he's going after these individuals, right? Just think about four million people, right? Behind these four million people, there are, you know, spouses, children, and supporters. You multiply that four million by four or five, right? You antagonize twenty million people, right? Sixteen million people, um, and and these are powerful people too, right? So just as a rational autocrat, right? And a rational, I would argue, a rational autocrat has to do things taking into account both the positive effects of his action as well as the potential liabilities. And you want to be smart about that, right? You don't want to antagonize 20 million people. (laughs) What I think should have been done is you are absolutely right that by 2012, the corruption was endemic, pervasive, and many people applauded the anti-corruption campaign uh, at that time. What I think would have been a better approach is you declare some sort of amnesty, hmm. right? So the, the you return the assets by February whatever sixteenth of twenty thirteen, and, uh, and and that's it, right? So I don't really punish you as 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 persons. Uh, all I care about that requires quite a bit of trust. Uh, uh well. Yeah, true, right? But but by doing that, uh, and you can create trust by making sure that you and this is a Singaporean system, by the way. Sure, so sure. if you don't, I mean, essentially, if you don't comply, I go after you, right? And 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 that's what they did anyway, right? So they 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 went after the four million people, and so. It doesn't actually require trust. It requires the belief that if you don't do it, I have a way of knowing that that you lie, that you cheated, right? So very few people believed that Xi Jinping could really purge 
four million people at the at the beginning of his leadership, but he proved that he could do it, right? So <laughs> there's no reason why I think you couldn't prove yourself to be effective in discovering these problems exposed, right? So I would argue doing that both gets to the issue of corruption. So so from now on, okay, you you cannot do this anymore, right? But I don't really punish you for your past behavior. So that's one. And the other, you know, maybe that's too much to ask is to reform the system, right? Uh, disclosure, yeah. asset disclosure, transparency. Um, but that requires a, a belief that the system is problematic. I do want to say that this is different from the traditional methods. And there are two traditional methods. One is killing the chicken to show to the monkey, right? right? So that was basically yeah. Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao's approach, right? So they kind of they kind of went after two or three people, but clearly that didn't scare off the monkey. There were so many monkeys that uh, <laughs> that, 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 that emerged. So that didn't quite work. And the other is killing the chickens and the monkeys, right? So that that's a Xi Jinping's approach. Tigers and flies both, right? <laughs> tigers and flies and and i think the problem with that approach is like riding the bicycle you cannot stop that's right got the and, tiger by the tail and, right. and and we're seeing that now right so i mean one idea is oh after the 20th party congress okay that's the end of it no i mean now they're looking into the medical hospitals and doctors it is riding the bicycle you cannot stop yeah. And, and and once you stop, you're viewed as as weak, and you get you invite challenge. So so you you always want to get ahead of the, your challengers. It is not a very good method. Well, you'll hear a lot more from from Yasheng Huang at our conference, uh, which I really hope a lot of you will be able to attend in New York on November second. Uh, of course, for the listeners to read for themselves, the the book is going to be out on August 29th. It's called The Rise and Fall of the East, How Exams, Autocracy, Stability, and Technology Brought China's Success and Why They Might Lead to Its Decline. Thank you so much for your time, Yasheng. This has just been fantastic. I have so many more questions I would love to ask you, but we'll save it for another time. Let's move on now to recommendations. First, a quick reminder again of our upcoming Next China Conference, which is November 2nd in New York, it's a wonderful event space that we've got on the East River in Midtown East. Uh, we have an amazing lineup of, of speakers, not just today's guest, Yasheng Huang, but also uh, highly interactive breakout sessions where there's bound to be just all sorts of topics that you know listeners will be keen to dig into with uh, the speakers that we've invited. I'm really looking forward to this. There's even going to be a game show to wrap up the day. So get your tickets now. Just click on events from our page at thechinaproject.com. All right, let's move on to recommendations. I've kept you so long, I feel bad. <laughs> but uh, Yasheng, what do you have for us? Well, I am going to be boring as a professor. I'm going to recommend a, a book. Uh, I'm reading uh, the biography of Oppenheimer, the American Prometheus. And I haven't seen the movie because I want to finish the book before I see the movie. So there's one tidbit on the book that I thought, was inspired me to think about these issues that way, and it's related to my current project. 
if you look at Oppenheimer and others in the Manhattan Project, these were the pathbreakers, the father, mostly father, but there there's actually also female uh, scientists of the atom bomb. These were original creators. Many of them were left-wing oh, yeah. communists, right? Or, or, or sympathizers with the communism. Whereas if you look at Soviet Union and China, who also followed the footsteps and created their own atom bombs, I bet the scientists there were communists as well. So rebels create, conformists replicate. And uh, and I sort of, sort of, you know, the the book didn't make that argument at all. The book is not about Soviet Union and about China. But that I'm going to work that into my current book, right? And so, replication actually requires conformity. Uh, so Peter Thiel's idea about zero to one requires breaking the current methods and, and, and breaking out of the current mode, and that requires a rebel, right? A communist in the capitalist system is a rebel. And there's a book uh, by the title of uh, something like Hippies and Physics, and, <laughs> and I'm going to reread the book. I, I read it a while ago. So it kind of has a similar idea. So so I, I, I recommend the book both because Oppenheimer is a fascinating individual, but Gabe but it also gave me at least this particular insight, uh, which I'm going to build on uh, for my next book. Fascinating. Yeah, I have not read it. I have seen the movie. The movie is quite good. I mean, I, I didn't bother to recommend it just because it's, you know, it's everyone's seen it along with, you know, Barbie. <laughs> yeah, I'm not recommending the movie. But, well, I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but I'm recommending the book. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think you'll enjoy the movie. It's It's quite good. And it's based yeah. very much on American Prometheus. So, yeah. All right, so my recommend that's a great recommendation, by the way. My, my recommendation is something much more frivolous. It's a YouTube channel uh, by this guy named Drew Journal, D-U-R-N-I-L, uh, who publishes mm. pretty much every day. And it's just focused on global geography, on history and economics. Uh, it just makes it extraordinarily accessible for young people. Um, my daughter, actually, I kept seeing her watching this, guy, this YouTube guy and, you know, it, she got me hooked on it. He's got like 900 plus videos and they're all, I mean, he's constantly looking at um, statistics, at graphs, at charts, at, at maps, uh, just showing, say, you know, different rankings of different geographies on different issues. And it's a, a fun and a pretty, you know, in, enriching overview constantly of, of facts and stats about our world. Uh, he's re- very clever. Uh, all sorts of just interesting huh. tidbits from, you know, current social science studies and 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 um, polling and and so forth. He's doing his part, I think, to combat the the well known ignorance of Americans about geography. <laughs> Definitely check it out, especially if you are a younger listener or you have younger children or or, or siblings that you want to show this to. Oh, I'll look into it. Yeah, Yasheng, what a pleasure, and uh, congratulations on an excellent, excellent book. I know you're, you're going to have lots of people talking about it, uh, both positively and critically, but uh, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're very well prepared for that. Thank you, Kaiser. It has been such a pleasure and to have such an extensive conversation. That, that I really enjoyed it from, from the very beginning to the end. Thank you. Thank you. I am really looking forward to seeing you in New York on, in, in November. Yeah, I'll see you.
Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts as that really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Citer, as it's now called, or on Facebook at, at The China Proj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.